collaborations and, uh, and friendships in science is uh, is you know, so key. It's, it's it is. It's like your tendrils, you know, reaching out, and the, the more people that you do good deeds for and you have good collaborations with, you know, and the more successful you'll be. I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. This is Blabcoats. My name is Samit Siviki. Today on the podcast, we have my friend Sandy, who's working on building nanocages. His research is really interesting because it has so many applications. For instance, these nanocages could be used to deliver drugs for therapies. But what Sandy is most concerned about is the environment and climate change. And he's focusing on building nanocages that could potentially trap carbon dioxide, which would mitigate the effects of global warming. Sandy has had a very interesting journey in science, and he's an awesome dude. I really enjoyed my conversation with Sandy. I hope you guys too. Um, Sandy Craze, uh, Alexander actually, uh, Sandy's short short name, uh, Irish and Scottish. Okay, <laughs> uh, cool. Long line of Alexanders and I'm the last. So, so is, your, is your dad an Alexander as well? No, I've got like four cars, three cousins, I've got an Alexandra, Al, oh. Alex and Sandy. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's cool. Is anyone related to Alexander the Great? I wish. Oh. <laughs> Not Macedonian, it's Irish. It's <laughs> Irish, And what do you, so, sorry, I was just going to say, what do you do at the moment? Ah, uh, so I'm uh, doing research. I'm in my master's of research at the moment um, in uh, metallo supramolecular chemistry. So uh, we look at really uh, large synthetic chemistry. So using uh, big, big organic molecules and trying to piece them together with uh, with metal ions into forming uh, metal directed assembly into forming really, really large stru- functional structures. Okay, so you're building these large structures by using um, molecules, but you're coordinating them by using exactly. Uh, metals. Exactly, it's like a, it's like a building. You know, you got um, uh, you can think of the ligands as like the 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 framework to the building almost, and the metal ions are, are what uh, come in and and hold each end of the frameworks together to, to piece it into and direct it into a bigger bigger structure. Right. And that way you can self. It's called self assembly. Uh, in other words, kind of like what our body does. It directs the synthesis of these large compounds through metal ions and you know, in, in different proteins, right? The active site. Mm. It's, it's a metal ion in a certain environment. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, I want to get back to your research uh, a little bit later, but what I'm interested in, uh, in discussing with you at the beginning is um, a bit about you when you were younger, like, as in, <laughs> right, so everybody goes through a different journey. Um, I was always into science. I didn't clearly know what I wanted to do, but I knew the field of science really interested me. Um, I'm curious about what your disposition was when you were a, a young child. Uh, young, young Sandy. I, I always knew uh, that science is, is 
was my passion. I mean, it's from a young age, I just always, I think people got a bit sick of me always asking, you know, but why and how? And, and, right. and you know, I, my, one of the first books mum ever got me was, I've still got it at home. It's like, uh, what's this made of? Or something like that. It's, it's like a yeah, chemistry for like you know, three-year-olds. Wow. Um, and that, that just always fascinated me. But <laughs> as a kid, like I knew I had this passion for, I always enjoyed it, but I was just so busy as every kid is wanting to be the next, you know, Australian cricket captain or, you know, the next Harry Kill. So I was, you know, played, played a heap of cricket and uh, didn't have too much time at school until, until a bit later on when I, you know, got to year 11 and 12. And mm. Did you have yeah. aspirations of becoming a professional cricketer? I did, I did. It only was uh, once I started, when I came out of the HSC and started uni, I was still playing cricket uh, quite competitively and then when I realised I had such a, that my passion for science was taking over mm. my passion for cricket, that's ultimately what it came to. Mm. And, and why um, did your passion for science take over for over cricket? Um, I guess I went to that stage where, you know, in, in the HSC, you're learning chemistry and, and biology and physics, but it's, it stops at a level because they're not really asking you to comprehend much, right? You know, the HSC is so much regurgitation, mm. so I wasn't... It was it was still cool, but I wasn't really enjoying it as much as when I got to uni. Mm-hmm. And you know they're just teaching you to think, and you know the the, the science got really cool. Mm, okay. And, um, and you know had a really couple of really good lecturers and really good supervisors who just kind of really made me you know take over. You know, so. Right. So you said you were interested in science. In I'm assuming in your HSC uh, for year eleven and twelve, you <clears> did some science units. Yeah, I I, I did. Uh, Chemistry, physics, and biology. Oh wow! So you did yeah. the triple. You're the triple threat, man. Did the triple threat. It put a bit of a sting on the rest because I, it meant I had to resort to like my ninth and tenth choices for other things because the lines that would would clash, obviously. So yeah, you know, I ended up doing like business studies, which was tenth choice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So were you good at math in high school? Uh, I was, you know, I, I guess you have to be for for physics and chem. Um, right. I, yeah, you know, I, I enjoy it a lot more now. In high school, mm. you don't quite see the use of it. Yeah. <laughs> Once you start getting into the into the real world of chemistry and physics, you um, you see all this how how useful this stuff yeah. is, and you wish you had to paid more attention. Oh, for sure. You <laughs> when you actually see, and I think that's one of the things I, I'm, I'm really sad about when it comes to high school mathematics. I think we don't see the application enough. You know. Um, it, it, I did three in the maths and then dropped to two in the maths in high school. But um, I remember throughout the whole time, I was thinking, this is useless. I'm never going to use maths. When am I ever going to use maths? But don't explain what it could be used for. Yeah. That's such a shame. Dude, it, it's... Um, and then I was watching a lecture by... I think there's this guy called Richard Arthur who wrote um, Mathematics, uh, Solving X to Figure Out Y or something like that. And it's all about like just the beauty of math. It's application and the cool cool patterns that exist and it's so fan like it's so I, I just thought at that time like if I had this in high school, if I had passionate teachers, like I would have done maths and possibly gotten into like I don't know. That's and, what it comes down to in the end, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, it's passionate teachers. I mean I was talking to even just uh, here at uh, UWS, you know, Burkhardt mm-hmm. uh yeah. Schruer, um he was saying in, in Germany quite often, uh what they had was the lecturers um so someone who comes out of a phd is uh 
they set the wages not too not too different as a high school teacher and the you know the graduate job coming out of your PhD. So you got all these people going. Okay, well I'll get the holidays. I'll go teach high school. Uh, so you got PhD teaching maths, teaching science. So he was saying that you know he uh, his maths teacher for a few years in high school was teaching them was taking when they were you know, doing differential equations or something. He'd say, all right, let's we've learned this. Let's go. Let's go do what Einstein did. You know, let's take his his maths and derive that. You know, wow. and that kind of thing. So showing them actually the cool, really cool things that it's it's useful, not just yeah, for sure. And and more recently, and by more recently, I mean once I've left high school, I've, I've become more and more interested about in physics. Like I've watched a lot of physics documentaries. I'm just fascinated because I'm more fascinated with the philosophical aspect of physics, <laughs> right? It, describing yeah. uh, the universe and nature in terms of words, things I can actually understand. Big, big physics. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> when you're getting to actually having mathematical models that explain a certain law of the universe, that's when I get lost. But I appreciate the fact that Math almost appears to be the language of the universe. Mm. I don't know if it's something that humans created, but it def like similar to how we created language. If it's you're describing it, right? It yeah. is a language. You, yeah, you know, you're describing the universe. That's, exactly, that's what it is. and and it's so intrinsically involved with how the universe works. I just keep thinking if I understood that back then, if I understood that by learning maths, we're learning the language of science essentially, right? Because you could we. I mean, yours is chemistry, but mine's biology, <laughs> physics. Every field of science has to use maths in one way or, or another. And it's a shame that we get these high school graduates, including myself, probably not you, but including myself, who had a bad taste um, left in their mouth yeah. because it, was, it seemed so esoteric and far removed from real-world life. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree, and I think 100% it comes down to, to how it's taught, and yeah. you know whether someone is passionate enough to pass that passion on. You know what I mean? It's someone speaks to you with a passion about something, it, it, it eeks into you, you know, it, it seeps, seeps through, and you, yeah. it's infectious. So, I mean, I had Roy Tasker in first years. Uh, oh, you had Roy Chemistry, and that that was what really put me uh -huh. down the chemistry track. I was, I thought, you know, maybe biochemistry or even biomed or something like that mm -hmm. until I had that year with, with Roy Tasker and then it was just... Wow. Never looked back. I was, I was going to ask you why you got into chemistry rather than other fields. So you had a really phenomenal... Roy Tasker, for the guys who don't know, was nominated as Australia's... Like, he, got, he, was, he was awarded, actually. Oh, not... Okay, Lecture yeah, sorry. Lecturer of the Year, yeah. Lecturer of the Year, which is... Yeah. Dude, that's so cool. Do you know what I mean? Like, there are so many lecturers out there, and to to be named as the lecturer of the year, mm. that's phenomenal. So you had a really great teacher. Yeah, and, and his research was into um, the communication of chem of chemistry. Oh, really? Yeah. So he he I think for a little while he'd stopped any chemical research, and he was he was more based on the translation the. the the you know the teaching of it and that would just it, right it's the science communication aspect of yeah. science yeah that's interesting so you know he was really good you know with he had all these models uh, always on um on uh, this odyssey program on the on the big screen on his computer that he'd always show you so you weren't just seeing you know 2d figures on a page mm -hmm. you're seeing you're seeing things bump into each other and right. run around the screen and things gave you more of a a 3D understanding mm. of what it is, and that's really important. Chemistry, I'm sure it is in biology too, not just to have this 2D, what you see on the page, mm -hmm. interpretation of things, but to understand 
that it's moving and dynamic sure. and, you know, what's happening in mm. reality. You know, so. Yeah. And I think that's so much important, more important for chemistry because biology, you have, if you're looking at a cell, you can look at it underneath a microscope. You can build 3D <laughs> models, right? But chemistry, it's so abstract because and physics even more so yeah. physics even more so it gets even more trippy um but it's these are so abstract and having models and even analogies can be so useful for students i know it was for me in high school because it gives you it gives you something to connect to and associate and like oh okay it's it works like this like electronegativity i would always associate to um a greedy friend that i had from high school and he'd be like hey so because you got like a you got lunch bro and he would just steal everyone's lunch just like like chlorine steals like <laughs> you know hoards hoards electrons and so like those sort of analogies always helped me and and it just shows what a great um lecturer he must have been to actually understand that and know you know, because chemistry is so abstract, it's good to just show 3D models so that students can understand this stuff. I mean, speak, uh, talking about the maths from before, we he, how he would actually do a lot of his a lot of his uh, lectures was he'd start at the start with this 3D model example, um, and especially when we got to the stuff that was a bit more mathsy, mm -hmm. a bit more maths based, you know, kinetics and things like that, and. Um, he would show you these models and show you the stuff reacting and build you to the point where you derived the equation for this phenomena without having to even think about numbers. Oh. It would, you would just, you know what I mean? You were just looking logic. at physically what was happening and then it's right. just logic. Ah. You know what I mean? Rather than the first thing you see is the equation. Right. And then he tries to describe to you what this equation means you know right. it's like you've derived that without even seeing any numbers it was just right. physical things bumping into each other right and and that would prevent because what i find and i'm sure you do some teaching do you do any sort of demonstrating yeah, yeah. so you'll find with with a lot of students is if they perceive something to be difficult they just shut themselves <laughs> off right yeah it, even though they can learn that if they just don't come in with a, with a bias, like, oh, it's too hard for me, I can't do this, oh, I'm not even going to bother. Whereas if you come, like how Roy did it, mm -hmm. come from it in an angle where they don't even know that they were going to think it's too difficult, right? You start off with something visual, and then at the end they realize, oh, I can understand this, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, which just shows how many times we put limitations and barriers in our own, oh, yeah. in our own learning. Yeah. We think something's impossible, and so we make it impossible to learn. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I want to also know is, so you're doing a master's of research. Um, you're interested in, in, in science and chemistry, um, but why did you decide to get into research um, and not in other fields of science? Let's say you, you could have gone into medicine, for example. Why, why research? Um, I guess it sounds a, sounds a little bit uh, noble and corny, but I really wanted to make a difference. That's the... Um, I guess, you know, in any field you can make a difference. As a doctor, you can make a difference. But my passion has always been the environment mm. and um, uh, particularly, you know, like emissions. I, I feel uh, the biggest threat we face, our society, uh, within the next 50, basically 30 to, you know, 100 years is, uh, is global warming and mm. climate change. And uh, so, yeah, I guess... What I'm doing is an area that I can then move into. Uh, I, I want to get in eventually to gas trapping, like carbon dioxide and, mm. and methane, and the catalysis and reuse of it. So you know, thinking how can we 
take it out of the atmosphere, but then how can we actually turn it into something useful rather than just trying to store it away in the earth or in building materials or you know like there is what what can we what uses can we make out of it how can we turn it into you know in the end something that a business isn't going to do this these Mm -hmm. businesses that are producing you know a lot of pollution unless you can make it economically viable can you produce a product they want to sell with their emissions you know so i guess that in a long way to answer your question that's i i didn't think about medicine i thought of that kind of thing because i you know i was just always you know which how could I make the, the impact that I want to make on society? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I guess it came down to to chemistry and, and, and physics, and you know, trying to look for solutions to end, you know, mm. to the problems. Uh, that's really cool. And I'm finding that a lot of people that I have interviewed for this, um, they want to become scientists. And two things I have to say, but first, they want to become scientists because they have this almost intrinsic desire to make a contribution, to make the world a better place. Um, which is really cool. And I think part of the other reason we were talking about before why I want to start this podcast, um, part of the other reason is is to build this connection between the science community. So if we see students like you, research students, and we see academic supervisors and actually see what the motivations behind their research is, mm-hmm. then it's going to be hard to lump all of you guys or all of us we should say in those categories like as people do you know pharmaceutical companies all corrupt all the science establishment you know it's all corrupt um they're all working for the one world government you know <laughs> so a scientific voice that's uh that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah so so my hope is to expose essentially some of the motivations that scientists have um the motivations that made them get into science in the first place and it's a, a cool thing that you that it, it appears to be that contributions contribution is the biggest factor it's it's the biggest motivating factor for a lot of them yeah and i mean if you know if uh, if you look at just the what you've got to go through to be a researcher you know it's uh you know you you three four years in your undergrad two years in masters three to four to five years of a phd you don't put yourself through nine to ten years at university unless you're pretty passionate about mm. what you're doing and you've you've got a reason for it, you know, and a lot of time that motivation is a positive, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, into a positive funnel, you know, Yeah. you know, whether it's medicine or the environment or... Right. I can just imagine some conspiracy theorists saying, yeah, that's nine years so you can get paid by the, <laughs> by the pharmaceutical, con- by the some pharmaceutical companies, you shill, flat earth. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Come out and working on seventy thousand dollars as a postdoc. <laughs> Bro, you, the, for the guys that don't know, so we, you have to do three years of an undergrad at least into, and then you have to do even honors, which is one year of research, or a masters, which is what I've done and what you're doing currently. Two and then years. yeah, and then that's two years. Um, and then three to four years of PhD, and after that you do a postdoc which is almost like an apprenticeship, right? Yeah. You finish your PhD and you're working under a, a, with a certain lab, but the pay is yeah, nine learning. years of study for... <laughs> it's, it's, it's not great. <laughs> you're learning to become your own, your own researcher. You're getting away from a, a single group kind of mentality mm. into your own, developing your own, you know, your own research. And yeah, it's, the pay is not too great. Yeah. It's, uh, in Australia, it's actually quite good. Really? Comparatively. That's um, why a lot of people... Uh, Think you know going away for a PhD, where you know a lot of other countries, the the PhD students get a bit more, uh, or actually paid a salary, you know, rather than a scholarship. 
and then come back for postdoc. <laughs> ah, okay. Because the pay is better here in Australia. Yeah, like relatively, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think I, it's much higher than America. I didn't know that. To be, I'll have to check that, but... Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> from what I've heard, yeah. Suck on that America. There's <laughs> <laughs> some American dude saying, America, yeah. <laughs> they all go to France now. You saw that YouTube clip. What happened? Of the... Yeah, the French, new French Prime Minister. No. Asking all the um, American scientists saying, I know Trump's not funding you guys, so oh. come to France. You know, where we're going to really start funding science and engineering and we want to solve all these problems. So if you want work, come to France. It's your country too. Wow, that is so... But I look like this. And by this, I mean, I look like <laughs> a Middle Eastern. And I'm sure they've had enough of us going from Syria to France. They're like, no, 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 accept you, Hamid. <laughs> Like that episode of um, Simpsons, No Homers. Did you watch that episode? Yeah. <laughs> he goes into the greenhouse and there's like no homers. So there's already a homer there. <laughs> we have enough like Middle Eastern states. <laughs> so I'm like, oh man, that's crazy. Um, okay, so I get it. So you, you, you want to get into research because of a sense of contribution. So what are some of the aspirations you have um, looking into the future? As in... What sort of things you want to accomplish? Where do you want? Where do you see yourself? Um, where do you want to be? It could be in five, ten, twenty, thirty, fifty years. Yeah, that, that's, that's that's an interesting one um, because you know I I'm not really so fussed on um, where where I'm doing what I'm doing or you know in what kind of establishment. You know, it's uh, academic in a university or industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know just want to be able to follow what, what I want to do, you know, um, get into the science that I, that I want to be doing and, you know, wherever that is in terms of industry or academia, mm. uh, I'm really flexible and open to that, because, especially because how quick things are changing at the moment. I mean, governments come in and stop funding something, uh, you know, like if you're a scientist in America at the moment in academic institutions, you know, you'd be losing funding while all of a sudden then there's all these rich benefactors like the mm. Gates and... Um, uh, Zuckerberg funding mm. startups and all these uh, private industry, you know, mm-hmm. and so you know science kind of moving to the private privatization. They almost you know, yeah. um, like Elon Musk with his SpaceX and the exactly. Neuralink stuff. It's all but, private money going to it, yeah. And you know, and, and he's, all these uh, renewable energy and things. It's, so all these really good things that he's doing, but he knows that it's not going to get done quickly with the governments in place. You know, he's he's taking it into his own hands and I think that's what's going to happen more so I'm not really fussed about where I where right. I go to do things I just want to be able to you know, make that make that difference and do what I want to do so sure um, follow that through in ter- yeah in terms of goals and what I want to work on um, um, I'd love to first finish my PhD <laughs> hopefully get a, you know, a few publications and uh, and then yeah, really get into the kind of science I want to work on because that is unfortunately the, the slippery slope of academia right you know it's when you're a student, you can only have the project that is available from supervisors, mm. you know what I mean? Unless, yeah. unless you've got a supervisor who's so lenient that you can come in with him, he'll say, okay, what do you want to do? You know, it, usually there'll be a restriction because of their expertise. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, then PhD, same thing. You're still dependent on, you know, the expertise of supervisors. You're still on the tit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> then, yeah, so hopefully after that, then you can start to, you know, I'd like to branch out and get into what I want to do. Nice. So you're not too fussed about whether it's academia or industry or policy, no. as long as you're doing what you enjoy doing mm. and you're making a difference. Exactly. And 
you know, for the for the the students out there who don't know too much about the, you know the academic or, or you know science in industry versus academia, it's, there's plenty of advantages to both, mm-hmm. um, and there's plenty of restrictions on both. You know, so in terms of career pathway. Um, a lot of people tend towards academia because then you can publish, you can publish papers and not have to worry about copyright, you know, patents and selling your, selling uh, the stuff you're trying to make. Research, you know, you yeah. can get it out there to the rest of the world and mm-hmm. get these papers and, you know, try and build up a career based on publishing your work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there is this problem with academia in that model where people are publishing stuff, even if it's quite useful and maybe you know the 150 to you know max 500 people sometimes less than you know maybe a community of like 50 scientists worldwide who are in that area might read that paper mm. and then it's lost you know it's lost in the annals of of academia even if this thing could be genuinely used for something mm-hmm. you know uh, it, it could have a use but in academia you know you publish it and it's unless you can you know it, it's unless you take it anywhere mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, yeah, in terms of application, no one will. Mm. It's kind of, it, it gets lost. Mm. So then that's the advantage of industry is you make this stuff and you've got the ability to then mm. take it and make the impact sure. on society, not, you know, physically with the thing, not just with the, the theoretical breakthrough that you're making. Right. You, know, you, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're trying to say. With industry, if you find something cool, there's funding there to pursue that yeah, to and make actually, it into a reality in real yeah. life as uh, something that can be so, uh, you know, used in society. Exactly. Move from basic science, which is what we're doing, and then applied science is where you take that and you actually try to find some applications, which is, yeah, I, I would assume in, in industry you'd have more funding and more support to actually pursue the applications. And that's where organizations like CSRO, which my supervisor worked for, and he, he can't even talk about... Like, I don't know how many years he worked with him, but he can't talk about what his research was about. Uh, everything that he's done is patented. And he's got a non-disclosure agreement so that if he does speak about it, he's going to be in a lot of trouble. And then so that wouldn't have been published. So now that he's in academia, mm-hmm. that's years that he's lost in terms of the academic currency, which is right. your papers, you know what I mean? So mm. it's, it's that interesting toss-up. And mm. um, uh, a lot of, of universities are starting to do some really cool things to get around that, like uh, at... Um, uh, Queensland University of Technology QUT they've mm-hmm. they built this new uh, science hub or this new science building and uh, I visited a, a few months ago when I was up nice. there they uh, the idea is I heard the uh, the person in charge of the project speaking at a conference like that he said the idea is that let's get everyone in the same building let's let's have the chemists on this level the biologists on that level the physicists Let's have them all there and then let's have the industry contacts and, you know, the engineers and the stuff that when these guys have a problem, the chemists have a problem that they need the physicists for, mm-hmm. or they have an application they think they might need the biologist for. Mm-hmm. And then when this thing's ready, they can take it straight to engineers and industry and get it out there and actually yeah. stop this almost wastage of ideas you know it's like you got all these really smart people working on stuff and publishing papers but then forgetting like leaving it mm-hmm. you know it's so uh yeah let's let's get that that whole from basic science as you said to applied science in society let's get that in the one building mm. so that it can get out there 
Right. Which is a great idea, and it's, it's what we don't do enough of. I heard Tom Miller make a really good presentation the other day mm-hmm. where he was saying that a great idea would be to build that into the PhD, you know, make, make them submit a, like a business proposal as part of your CS, COC, you know what I mean, to, to kind of get people thinking about that, you know, get, get people thinking about how, how you can take your, uh, your research and try and turn that into something that can be of, of immediate value as well as the, you know, a lot of research is mm-hmm. so theoretical and basic science. But you know, thinking about how you can take this and to turn the next it into step, something. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And I, he had a present, I didn't get a chance in, to attend because I was teaching at a different campus. But I think his idea is so great. I mean, uh, if you're coming out of a PhD and only specializing in one thing, that's the only thing you know, and you don't have these other skills, um, which is so imperative, like, you know, business skills. So just in case you come up with a great idea, how can I capitalize on this? How can I make this available for everyone? Um, But going back to what you said about uh, the University of Queensland, it's interesting because um, by getting science, I think is is more collaborative than anything else. Yeah. You know, it's so difficult to uh, make an impact if you're uh, an, in isolation. You know, if you're in uh, in the cave like a monk, some hermit, you, you no one's gonna. You can't come up with a great with great ideas. You have to collaborate with people, um, consult other people with different expertise, and by putting everyone together. You know, chemists, biologists, physicists, and engineers. I mean, that's where the magic I would expect would happen. Exactly. It's, you know, I mean, as an example, the, we sent um, a paper of mine away just a, a couple of weeks ago. We had a team doing the, the hardcore physics from, from China. I, I've never met them. Mm. You know, uh, we had uh, some, some teams doing the photophysics from University of Queensland. Um, and then we had people from Sydney Uni so it was all these people with different disciplines from all over the place coming together for this paper mm-hmm. and imagine if you had that in the one building oh, you know what I mean it's, yeah. it's, it's the kind of thing they're trying to they're trying to get more of and then and then you've got more minds saying okay is this applicable in society obviously and a lot of the stuff you know that could get published you know isn't mm-hmm but at least you've got the minds there to kind of to, to think through it. Yeah, I, I think it's also a case of chance favors the prepared mind. If you have all um, the necessary preparations there, so if you have the chemist biologist, you have the equipment there, you have the facility there, then you're bound to get more lucky than if everyone's in separate isolated areas of the world. Yeah. You know, and to your example, I mean, just, you know, it, it again, um, shows how collaborative science is where you guys are doing one type of research but you're, you're relying on other people's expertise um, to help you essentially achieve your goal and your research aims. Yeah, and, and as you said, that's science. You know, it's, it's uh, so collaborative. You, 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 as you said, you can't just, you no. can't do something. You can't, you can't achieve much on, on your own. That's right. There's so much that you don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah for sure. <laughs> for someone sure. else does. Yeah. Did you guys do a reading in, um, you're in first year right now, yes? Uh, just finishing. Okay, great. Yeah. Did you guys do a reading on Stephen Hawking's? Yeah. The, yeah. Um, th- that was an interesting read, don't you think so? Because... Yeah. The Miller, was it? I think so, yeah. Where the perception of Stephen Hawking's uh, as in the public is that he's this lone genius, this brain in the vat, you know, this... But the actual, like, 
reality is that this guy is being supported not only by the computers and the technology um, which enable him to do what he's doing but all the research students that are pushing his research forward yeah. people who are actually writing the articles mm. and then he gets the credit for it yeah and it's it, it's it's crazy that that still happens uh, in terms of i i hadn't seen many examples of where i that still happens sometimes only rarely do i ever see especially in our field right uh, a paper that comes out with just two names or one name mm. you know what i mean usually it's as, as we were talking about it's many mm-hmm. uh, but it was interesting to learn that that you know, a lot of the papers that he actually does publish is just Stephen Hawking's, and wow. not not the names of the the PhD or postgrad students who mm. did the majority of the work. You know, obviously it's his brainchild. Like he's right. He's given them as did you, you when you read it. It was saying he you know he gave them this specific exact specific projects project right, you know, and he, he's handpicked someone from all these math tests and mm-hmm. stuff to be perfect for that, mm-hmm. but. You know, it's someone else is doing the work, and right. uh, and then it's it's just him on the paper. It's very rarely him and some other co-author. Yeah, you yeah. know what I think. Probably if I if I had to look at it from his perspective, he's like the human being, and the research students are the are Google search. He's like, <laughs> why would I give Google any credit? <laughs> right. <laughs> I came up with the ideas. They're just doing the manual stuff. But I, but again, it just shows. That even him, who uh, individual who we think is like this lone genius, is no genius without the support, the mm. network of competencies, as he puts it, um, that enable him to do what he's able to do. Without those networks and without your networks, without all these physicists and chemists and so on and so from different parts of the world, you wouldn't have been able to get that paper out. And, no, exactly. And that, that actually brings up a really interesting point of academia, especially is that... The, the better you get and the more you learn about your area and the more the more the higher up you, you go up the ranks the less science you actually do mm. you know you've, you've got your minions and you, you know you, you're, you're coming up with your ideas and you've got you know your tentacles your arms your students and, mm. and but you, the, the less science you actually do the better you get which is which is as, as you know and I guess that's so, <laughs> Stephen Hawking's obviously there's restrictions on what he can do but uh, it's, yeah, it's quite interesting. That's an interesting observation because I, I was talking to Alex, who's um, he's in my research group. But we were talking about. I was asking him, "Have you seen our supervisor, who's Dr. Mark Jones? Have you ever seen him in the lab?" He's like, "No, dude." I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" <laughs> and then I came, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I realized. I think, as you said, you know, you're going from from our stage, which is we're doing like each tiny step. To figure out what the overall, um, you know, idea is and how something's working, whereas he's looking at it from a more global perspective, yeah. and and I think part of the argument of that Stephen Hawking's um, book was that to be successful in science, you have to be in that crossroads where people are coming and connecting with you, right? Yeah. And so you're you're at the crossroads of these networks of competencies, and through. In Stephen Hawking's, and I gave a, a couple other examples, but the people who have the most extensive networks are the ones that are the most successful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's collaborations and, uh, and friendships in science is uh, is you know, so key. It's, it's it is. It's like your tendrils, you know, reaching out, and the, the more people that you do good deeds for and you have good collaborations with, you know, and 
the more successful you'll be, you know. The, yeah. <laughs> kind of sounds like religion. Yeah. <laughs> we spoke about your aspirations um, when you're a young kid, but or, or even now, I should say. What are some of the fears that you have looking into the future? And it could be as specific and as broad as you yeah. like. Um, I guess there's the the obvious, more of a, a nervous excitement with academia or with science in general, I guess. Oh, is that um, with how globalized the job is these days, you know, you, you've got no idea where you'll end up in the next, you know, even during the PhD, if I, if I even do the PhD here in, in this country, you know, it's at some stage of my PhD, I'll probably be spending extended time overseas. Afterwards, most likely, we'll be working overseas, you know, it's, uh, so it's a kind of a nervous excitement, you know, where there's no kind of set path of yeah. where I'll be, where I'll be living. Um, so that's not so much fear, but um, I, I guess one fear, you know, when, when what I want to go into is, is, you know, trying to handle global warming is the fear of how far down the track we actually were getting, you know, it's, it's, it is, it's really scary. It's quite depressing every time you think about it, you know, how far down the slope where we're starting to, to tip before and how far we do we have to go before you know uh, the majority of the world wakes up to the fact that there is a serious problem you know it's um there's uh there's this thing called the tipping point mm-hmm. in, in climate science which is like there in this in the siberian permafrost there's just stupid amounts of of methane from the decayed biological matter uh, in submersed under the ice and as it starts to warm and melt um if it gets to the stage where we start to melt the permafrost um (laughs) stupid amounts of methane get released that's called a tipping point because methane is as a greenhouse gas is um, 26 times worse than carbon dioxide it stays in the atmosphere longer and traps heat um, so the message is don't fart people <laughs> yeah. well, cover up your cows yeah. <laughs> but, but you know like con- compared to compared to what's in the permafrost it takes a lot of cow farts you know that's <laughs> pretty scary yeah so yeah, the idea is once we tip over that point there's not real anything we can do <laughs> yeah. we're just screwed we need a big methane tra- <laughs> wow okay so you I get that that's a that's a that's a good answer um, because some of the answers that I've gotten from other people are just the insecurity of of not knowing what's coming up, which is something that you express as well. Um, but it's good to see that you're thinking um, about you know how are we going to solve this issue. The unfortunate thing is that it is uh, a motivation that for it to happen sooner is going to have to be monetary. You know, mm-hmm. there's all this vested interest, you know, whether In people oil, like yeah. to admit it or not, in oil and and you know, and coal and clean coal, <laughs> probably the biggest paradox. Or what they call it? They are. Um, it's just been washed really thoroughly. <laughs> That's they washed all the carbon out of it. You know. <laughs> but um, unfortunately, that and that is that is the struggle for for the, us as scientists you know, who have a passion in the area. Is like, why can't you guys just see the problem mm-hmm. and? you know, put aside a little, you know, your monetary benefit mm. for this. I mean, this is the future of the planet. This is your children growing up with being able to go and see a polar bear, you know, like also see, even see them on TV, being able to go to a rainforest, being able to you know go to the snow, mm. you know, 
you know, do you want to like have your grandchildren and be telling them about you know, the pandas that used to live or, you know, that's... Or the coral reef that existed. <laughs> yeah, the coral how, reef that existed. How it wasn't bleached anymore. Or it wasn't bleached at the time, yeah. How we used to have ice on the poles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people used to actually be orientated this way. <laughs> but, uh, people and, used to live above ground. <laughs> <laughs> like Matrix. <laughs> out, of the, out of the Matrix. Yeah. But no, but, and that's, that's the challenge, is, is making it, at the moment, is making it economically viable for for industry mm. otherwise unfortunately it's just not going to happen until it's almost too late you know it's for it to happen now within the time we we need it to happen mm-hmm. the, the trouble the job for scientists is to come up with the issue like the problem but make it a problem that will also make people money mm-hmm. and unfortunately that's the bottom line you know yeah. you have to be able to say to a company yes i can trap your carbon yes i can do the right thing and stop you know stop these emissions entering the atmosphere, but you know why would you just pay for this? Right. You know why would you just pay me to do this? Yeah. You wouldn't. You would only do it if you're going to make money. For sure. And, so, you know. and and companies are notoriously greedy. I mean, oil companies have hired scientists in the past to convince people that lead in petrol is actually natural and good for you. Like that took twenty years of. <laughs> like one specific scientist and I forget his name but it was in that Cosmos documentary with Neil deGrasse Tyson it was really he's he's a scientist that was able to date the age of the earth um, based on the um, ratio of lead and uranium so he's the one that figured out oh no there's so much lead right now that's never been here before Um, and they, they hired like all these other fake scientists to essentially pump this message through Congress in America. No, no, lead is natural. Lead is good. Lead is this. Lead is that. And I, I feel kind of... I just hope that we can get it together and that our uh, personal interests won't get in, in the way of human survival. It's, it's hard to comprehend, isn't it? Like, you imagine being one of those businessmen. Mm-hmm. Like, say, you're... You own a uh, a mine or something along the coast of Queensland near near the reef, and it's it's hard to comprehend what's going through their mind when they'll make a decision that they know is going to be detrimental to to, to the world, to the environment, to the, you know the Barrier Reef in this instance by dredging their, you know they they could put their waste you know underground somewhere or they can dredge it into the Barrier Reef. It's cheaper to dredge it. You know, like it's yeah. it's it's weird, to, like to or you know the oil tycoon who to put yourself in their head and make this decision that right. is making you money but detrimental to the future of the pl- of, of humanity, of humanity. the planet, it's, everything. Yeah, it's it, it's just weird to try and put yeah. yourself in that. No, I I totally get it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. if you even with that lead example, for example, um, for instance, with that lead example. Those people who were funding these other scientists to talk or, or tell Congress that lead is natural, their kids were inhaling lead. Mm. They lived in areas that had high lead um, pollution levels. So it's it, like it, it, it's almost like a mental disease, it seems <laughs> like. It's like the greed takes over so bad that there's no logic and there's no consideration of the consequences. You're like, man, give me that money. Give me that money. Who cares about everything else, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. It's like, you know, if, if aliens attacked and you had to make a decision where you could save the world from these aliens or have a billion dollars, yeah. 
you choose to save the world from the aliens because otherwise you wouldn't be there to yeah. have your billion dollars but yeah. it's the same thing but it's just long term it's weird that you know people will make yeah exactly <laughs> right yeah in these i think it's also as you said it's long term uh, it's almost a thing analogous to how students approach assignments right if they have two weeks they're like ow just <laughs> worry about it later right and just you wake up like you wait till the very last night and that's where the sense of urgency comes it's when you see the foreseeable outcome you're like oh my god if I don't do this assignment right now, I'm going to get a zero. Or if we don't change things right now, the world is going to explode. I don't know. You know, like, <laughs> I don't know. There's going to be one big cow fart. Too much and, methane. Yeah, too much methane. <laughs> and somebody's going to light up a lighter and then boom, that's the whole earth gone for you. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> We'd be in the Matrix anyway, so. Hey, exactly. <laughs> Just one more question, and I promise that you go. We didn't talk too much about your project which is a shame. We kind of discussed your project in terms of coordinating um, the self-assembly large molecules. But can you just elaborate a little bit about your research? Uh, imagine you're explaining it to a non-academic science. Yeah, so, so my, my research at the moment is kind of the, I guess, uh, the wax on, wax off, kind of, you know, uh, Mr. Miyagi learning to, to be able to do the more complex stuff that I'd need to go on and do Eventually in PhD, I will start you know, the gas trapping and things. Um, so at the moment, I'm working with very similar systems, um, but for a different immediate application. Uh, very, very similar systems though. So at the moment, we're working on really porous nanomaterials and um, the discrete though, discrete porous nanomaterials. So instead of things that polymerize into a larger, you know, into a, you know, into a big framework or mm -hmm. a polymer, Right, um, and a polymer is just a long chain of something, or repeated, uh, repeated units. Connected. Just it's like a different Lego pieces. The same Lego pieces just connecting over and over and making long chains of whatever. Exactly. Yeah. But imagine if then you built those Lego pieces into really big, porous structures, which means a lot of area on the inside, a lot of surface area. If you built them into bigger, discrete ones, mm -hmm. units, and then put them together, and now what this does. Is this increases the surface area on inside of, of these materials by vast amounts. Mm -hmm. There was there's um, part of what I work on are called molecular cages. As I was saying, they like we build these, we use these metals to build these ball, uh, these organic molecules into these pretty much big hollow balls. And the idea is that when you have this insane amount of surface area, and I'm talking as in one gram of this stuff can have, if you could unfold all these little nano balls almost mm -hmm. one gram would have enough surface area to cover a football field wow easily and so um and that's an old state you know there's been bigger bigger ones produced since then but the cool thing about when you have porosity in nanomaterials is it allows you to do lots of really cool things and that's like the gas trapping mm -hmm. uh was one uh, catalysis so if you imagine things in, in solution when it, whenever things react in a solution they're there's billions and billions of solvent molecules per your target molecule, right? Like solvent molecules like water, for instance. Exactly, exactly. You've got salt dissolved in water. Mm -hmm. And for these things to react, they've got to travel through all this solvent that they're interacting with mm -hmm. and then collide with enough energy to, to produce the product. Mm -hmm. But if you can... So the chances of them doing that, statistically, when you think about it, actually really low. Mm -hmm. That's why you've got to leave reactions on for a week or, you know... But if, if you could use this big cage mm -hmm. and the solvent and 
the just you know say just two of your target your reagents come in mm-hmm. and can bounce around inside this cage and react the chances of them colliding and producing this reaction gets increased dramatically so you mm-hmm. get catalysis you, know, you speed up the reactions or even have sites inside these pores mm-hmm. that actually increase the rate of the reaction by you know um say mimicking biological molecules and things by having these open metal sites and things that can mm-hmm. that can um, produce faster reactions you've got drug delivery is another avenue you know housing housing a molecule and getting it somewhere um it's the there's so many so so many uses that something that my uh thesis is focusing heavily on is what's called spin crossover um spin crossover and it's getting into the the physics uh we <laughs> described before so it's where you're taking um a a metal ion that has no unpaired electrons when something has no unpaired electrons it's not made it's not magnetic we, we call that diamagnetic mm-hmm. but then so normally normally these metals would have paired electrons uh depends it depends on the metal so but the important thing about this property right. is that the spin crossover is that you take a metal that either has no uh Mag- uh, has no unpaired electrons it's right. not magnetic mm-hmm. and either with temperature pressure or light you can make it transfer to one that does oh, permanently so. until you reverse that oh wow so you could so take... you go from not magnetic to magnetic Dude, that's that's magical so and you could then, uh, you could essentially take a metal that's not magnetic at all and turn it into a magnetic metal yeah and the the the, the, the and you can do it in heaps of different ways and the applications of this are um, in uh, sensors and uh, the big one is in data storage because if you think magnetic and not magnetic that's zero and one. Zero one. but then there's ones where they don't just go magnetic to non-magnetic they go through steps where they might go from if you have say instead of in, as I was talking about these discrete molecules if it has one metal then it might do that it might go from just say on to off one to zero magnetic mm-hmm. to not magnetic but if, if in one discrete molecule you've got two or three metal centers that all do the same thing, mm-hmm. but at slightly different temperatures, mm. then you're not just dealing with ones and zeros, you're dealing with one, one, zero, one, 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 zero, 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 you know. Right. So the code that you can encompass becomes, so this is quantum computing and data storage, quantum data storage. Wow, um, that's interesting. Just uh, in terms of turning a a metal into a magnetic one so let's just say it's a it's a it's a metal that doesn't have any magnetism so that's when you have two electrons that are paired and if you take away one of those electrons then what so how do you make it magnetic is the yeah, question so I'm asking. I, I guess a, a key thing uh, to understand first is there's a difference between the magnetism that we usually uh, comprehend which is uh, say we take a magnet mm-hmm. and stick it uh, with iron filings yeah with iron filings and they attach mm-hmm. that's magnetic magnetism on a bulk scale which means that the, the metal ions that have these as I said unpaired electrons within the material their magne- magnetic moments all align perfectly so that when you bring a field near it it can be attracted mm-hmm. there are some bulk solids like that where the, the individual metal atoms are magnetic but because they're all aligned in opposite directions. They cancel each other cancel out. Cancel each other out. So this is different. This is magnetism for a single, for a single discrete molecule, right? Okay. And 
that builds up in, in the solid when it, it, in the crystal lattice. And as uh, in answer to your question, how it was how... How did you make them magnetic? Okay, so um, for anyone studying chemistry in the MAJC, electrons can exist in, in energy states. Uh, they're called orbitals, molecular orbitals. Um, and the, a cool little law in physics, you, uh, you can only have two electrons in one molecular orbital. And they're, they're paired. They're, electrons have this property, it's called spin. Pretty much it's just, it's kind of just like the orientation of their magnetic moment, right? Mm -hmm. So if you imagine they, two electrons have this negative electronic moment that's orientated in a specific direction. If you put them in the same energy state, this orbital, mm -hmm. in that same with that same orientation of the of this negative charge, this negative, uh, it's it's not going to be very. They're going to be opposing, right? Right. And so, what to fit two in an orbital? They one is flipped with the orientation the other way around. Right. So only two can fit in an orbital. So if you imagine, now if you have a metal with uneven number of electrons, that will automatically have a spare electron. Electron, yeah. Right. But, so we can take metals that have six, or so, say so, an even number. Mm -hmm. And we produce organic molecules that coordinate, as you were saying, with them. So bind to the, to the metal centers. And they have just the right energy of interaction to when you increase the temperature or pressure or light, it allows two, instead of saying, if, um, if I've got these two that are paired in the one orbital, mm -hmm. It allows it to go, it, 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 which is at that stage the most energy, the lowest energy so state. So stable. The most stable state. Yep. It actually allows, as you increase the temperature, this state where one of those electrons moves up into a higher energy orbital to be the more stable state at that temperature. Mm -hmm. So you're not taking away electrons or adding electrons. You're just moving the energy state that it's within. And then by doing that, you're changing the magnetic properties of the material. Okay, let me just see if I understand this correctly. So electrons exist in orbits, and for those who don't have a chemistry background, you can think of an orbit like the sun, and you have electrons like the... the obviously, this is very simplified, because <laughs> we know it's not like this. There's different shapes, S orbitals, but let's be... <laughs> but we'll just go with a simple analogy. You have the sun, and you have these planets orbiting them. So Mercury and Venus are the inner orbits, whereas like Neptune and Pluto would be the outer orbits. <laughs> so if you're in the outer orbits, you have more energy, and in the... Or in the inner orbits you have less energy, right? Would that be correct? So as your energy state increases, you jump to a higher orbit, so you jump to an outer orbit. Yeah. So, and you're saying that you could, you're, you're saying that you could have these two electrons existing in the same orbit only if they have opposite spins. So it's almost like uh, being in a conservative um, country <laughs> where you can only get together if you're the opposite sex. Exactly. As soon as you're showing any sort of affinity, like there's no way homosexuality is going to be tolerated in certain parts of the world. So you can only accept opposites, right? Opposites except, attract. Except to make them fit, you wouldn't put them in the same room and just turn them upside down. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what they're doing with the electrons. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, and so as long as those opposite electrons... 
are together, there's no magnetism. But as soon as you kick one out, for whatever reason, increasing the temperature, the yeah. energy, that one electron jumps to an outer orbit, so it might jump from the Mercury orbital to the Earth orbital, yeah. and over there it's by itself, and that's what causes the magnetism. And now you've got two by themselves. Oh. Yeah, so you've got two, you go from none to two. Right. Uh, and so, you know, the, the example, the, the systems we use, we go from none to five. Um, unpaired so it's 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 quite interesting and you can play with these different metals so there's a couple that specifically um, are better than others because the energy levels of those orbitals right. are within the region that we need that's so interesting so does that mean that electrons um, by default are electromagnetic they have a magnetism to themselves oh yeah they're a charged particle right so um, yeah, any any charged particle has its has its own magnetism magnetic moment you know oh, we wow. we um you know, protons the same. Uh, they they have a magnetic moment because when when you think about it, what gives off an electric charge, an electric field, a magnetic field, is an electric uh, a point of electric charge that's moving, right? You know, like when you're in year twelve and you took that magnet through a through a coil mm. and you you, know, you create your own little generator. Right. But the same thing with an electron. That's it, they're constantly buzzing around, right? A better way to think of it, rather than the 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 orbits, is just a big smear of electrons just around, like a cloud. A cloud, because technically, they, they exist every everywhere within their orbit at, at once. You know, so it's um, whenever you get a charged particle, it's moving, it's producing a magnetic field, right. and so yeah, they they do, and we use that in a lot of chemistry and physics. We mm. actually use that to our advantage. The fact that um, have, if you've ever done NMR or anything like that, right. you know, yep. That, I've done a bit. I've, I've, I remember from um, the undergrad where you, you're looking at the peaks to determine the structure of the molecules. And so what you're actually looking at there is they're probing the magnetic moment, the spin state of the the nucleus, right? But they know of um, of the protons and the neutrons. But they know that that signal that they get from that is altered by. The magnetic field that the electrons are giving off around each oh. proton and neutron, you know what I mean? So they right. can distinguish the environment of different atoms by looking at the the magnetic moment of the of the nucleus of the atom and, and how that's affected by the electrons. Right, that's interesting. That your analogy of you know getting a battery and essentially getting a long piece of wire and wrapping it around a nail and then just you know, attaching that to a battery. That's just electrons moving from the negative, the anode to the cathode, correct? Yeah. Well, uh, and that creates magnetism because you could essentially make that... A moving, char moving charge. Yeah. The electrons are moving within the, the material and that's, that produces an electric, an electric field. Dude, you've just blown my mind. <laughs> <laughs> now I know why magnetism works. Oh, shit. <laughs> awesome. Um, this has been a really interesting conversation for me. Um, screw it. I was going to ask you one question, but it's getting late and I'd prefer to just let you as it is. And uh, I want to thank you for your time, Sandy. This was really good. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. So, what did you think of our, of our guest, Sandy? What a smart guy, hey? Honestly, <laughs> he's the type of guy that you get really jealous of. He's a triple threat. He's a triple threat. Yeah. Sports, music, 
Science. And good looks. Oh, yeah, good looks. Yeah. <laughs> charming guy. Charming guy. Very smart, dude. I was I was very intrigued. It's it's you know what I, I'm finding with a lot of these guys that we interview for this podcast is a lot of these guys are motivated by a a almost an obligation to contribute to to make a, a difference in the world to make their lives mean something yeah yeah i, I thought that as well like it, it makes me feel a little bit bad because <laughs> when i think about my own motivations they're a little bit more selfish you know i'm i'm kind of just doing science because i like it and I know, like, I know they, I know Sandy loves it too, and he kind of reiter- reiterated that when he was talking about his youth and things. But um, I don't have any grand aspirations of saving the world, mm. and um, and I think a lot of people are really well motivated, and I think that's something I need to think a little bit more about as well. That's that's interesting you say that. I I, I find that certain people have you know this uh, clear idea of. You know, they're going to change the world and I'm going to do it through these set of skills. You know, I'm going to make myself as skilled as I can in this field and make a contribution in this way. And others, you know, they're driven by this is what makes me feel good. This is what I enjoy doing. And I think, th- I don't believe one is less than the other. I yeah, think yeah, what I it think is. Right. And I, I think Sandy as well, like he didn't say this exactly. He alluded to it, I think, in the start when he was talking about... uh his youth as well because that's something i can really connect with always being fascinated with like how things worked and mm. stuff like that and then pulling things apart and i think he mentioned stuff like that he mentioned that book that uh the book that he's i'm gonna have to buy for my kids i think actually uh what was it called um what is this made from right. uh, for for quite young kids where it just teaches them words about uh what things are made from and what what parts make up like technology and things like that i think it's a great idea and wow. yeah i think that's a Great idea. I'd, honestly, I have uh, two nieces and a nephew who are around five to about eight, and I should get them something like that. It'd yeah. be good. Yeah, because kids as well, and Sandy mentioned this, kids just, they're like filled with so much wonder about the world and mm-hmm. what goes on. They're always asking questions. Mm-hmm. I think you kind of lose that a little bit as you as you grow up. You kind of, life takes hold and you get responsibilities and things and you get like less time to wonder. Um it's one of the things I like about science, actually. It kind of like keeps that wonder still there. You get to still kind of chase it a little bit. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was good. But back onto it, his motivation for doing good about the world, I, I, do, I do really admire that. And I think it's got to take a little bit of both, you know. You've got to have that passion for what you're doing, but it's always good to be well motivated and, and have good motivations behind that passion and at least put that passion into things that <clears throat> will, at, will at least make other people's lives better. So, yeah, I thought that was really admirable yeah to hear him say that you know um what is also good he's a student who is you know concerned about our future the future of this planet he's not uh, an individual that's getting paid by the oil companies he's not you know this individual that people have this perception of science and scientists as this establishment where everyone's in on it you know it's almost like the freemasons the one world yeah, government like big conspiracy theory you know yeah. yeah you see actually him you know you understand um why he is into actually um making a difference why he's interested in climate science and why he's concerned so yeah. bringing that human side is so important in my opinion because it shows that no we're not all these you know, bots or these devil worshippers that, that yeah, are exactly. out there to screw people over over money. No, a lot of us are actually driven 
because we want to make a difference. Whether yeah, it's yeah. be it small or big, it doesn't really matter. And it's that it's that uh, that sense of wonder that we're talking about that manifests itself, I think, in in that desire to kind of make a difference and and find out stuff, find out about the world that we live in and the environment to make a real change. It's, it was great. I think it was really good um, hearing him talk about the maths as, lo- as language as well when mm. he brought up uh, all that stuff about Roy Tusker. Uh, Roy Tusker was a um, is a chemistry lecturer, and if you remember from the interview, I think you guys mentioned this, that he won the Lecturer of the Year uh, mm. prize throughout Australia, so it's a massive effort. Chemistry lecturer at Western Sydney Uni, and um, I unfortunately never had the chance to be lectured by him. I think he was awarded the Lecturer of the Year the year before I started my undergrad. And you got too big for you. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I he took the he took the hard chemistries, and I was a little bit more focusing on the easy chemistries. And then you know, as you well know, kind of went into the biochemistry stuff. So I missed out. I missed out on lectures from him. So yeah. it was really good to hear someone like Sandy really tell me some stuff that I didn't know about him before. Um, like the way he teaches and mm. the way he introduces concepts and things like that. I thought mm. I thought it was great. Yeah, and and you know, it just shows what sort of influence your teachers have on you. Mm. You know, I'm finding on this journey that many people go through. It's just small little things along the path that pushed him in one direction or another direction. Yeah, exactly. Because he mentions that, doesn't he? He mentions that he wasn't necessarily chemistry bound, I think, before no. he, he met Roy. So he, he was the triple threat in terms yeah. of doing biology, chemistry, and physics. Yeah. But he, he had aspirations of becoming a, a professional cricketer. So yeah. Or a doctor, I think he mentioned as well. Yeah. yeah. So he, yeah. I think he, he, he can. Um, so it's interesting how one person that. can actually change your, your life trajectory mm-hmm. in in that way Dude. yeah it's great the other yeah the other thing um while we're on the topic of roy i thought it was really great that sandy mentioned that uh how roy used to get them to derive the equations that they were using for these chemistry uh problems from first principles and that really uh hit home with me because i have a hopeless memory due to uh certain party activities <laughs> that i did in my youth <laughs> Oh, but uh <clears throat> so i i, I can't remember remember anything from rote i really I, my brain doesn't work like that i always build stuff up build stuff up from the ground mm-hmm. i don't remember formulas i just kind of remember concepts how concepts yeah that's right and how to work it out and if you know how to work it out you actually don't need to remember much at all because mm. if you understand the concepts and, and i like biology i think biology is maybe a little bit easier to do this with i think you hit it on this in the interview that it's a little bit more abstract chemistry and right. physics as well so biology is a bit more easier to do this with if you learn the concept i find you don't have to remember the terms as much mm. and that really helped me as a student well all the all the way through um, my student kind of career. Yeah, and and I think it just shows how great of a lecturer Roy Tasker is, in that he recognizes that, you know, a lot of learning chemistry, because it's so abstract and the perception out there is that it's so difficult, he removes a lot of that misconception by getting rid of the math, by getting rid of everything and just bringing back the basics, just using visual aids, you know, and walking through people, walking people through just logic and then yeah. they understand oh i get it and then you throw them the maths and they're like oh wow yeah exactly and then they realize that the maths is actually a description about reality yeah which i thought was really good because um 
the first time that really hit me was in my science undergrad as well when we did the a unit quantitative thinking it was called uh, it's, it's one of the basic level maths units but they got us to do an assignment there where we had to write out an equation for whatever we we're doing but we also had to write the equation in prose so just in normal words and it really like mm. that was the first time it really hit me that a mathematical equation is literally just a sentence it is yeah it's really it is it's not like a language it is literally a language and it's a language that we use to describe events that happen in the universe happens in the real world that's right so so you hear these throwaway lines like maths is the language of the universe i've said them as well but when you kind of see it like that like it really is the language that we use to describe the universe right so it's really a, a special thing i think maths yeah for sure. You know, I, I realized that I, I think in my undergrad, but I became to really appreciate it in, in my master's when I had to work on this project for one of my um, linguistics units where we had to model the tongue shape. So we we're looking at the differences between, you know, the articulatory manipulations that singers utilize when singing compared yeah. to just to talking. So how you change your vocal tract to make your sound, you know, to make your voice sound beautiful. And uh, we had to like put these sensors on the tongue, but then we have to model how the tongue was shaped based on what vowel was being said, and all yeah. all of that was quadratic equations. Jeez. And and I'm like, wow! Like yeah. you think in high school, this is never going to be useful. Yeah. Then <laughs> then you realize, yeah, that's yeah, it's true. Because when you're in high school, I don't think you really have that realization that what you what you're learning is description of real things in the real world. Mm. It, it has that abstractness that it's hard to relate to and it's maybe a little bit of a failing of the way that people teach maths but um obviously people like Roy are right onto it mm. i thought it was really interesting just while we're still on Roy. i thought it was great i didn't know this that he's actually done a lot of work on science communication and communication of chemistry mm. and some study on that i'd love to have him on the podcast i think um i think it'd be really good to explore that with him yeah i i, I had no idea but clearly he's passionate about you know, science communication and uh, showing people why chemistry is so fun to learn and why it's so interesting and why we should do it and um, why it's so important to do. It's work by people like Sandy, you know, it's um, that that type of work could potentially change the world because, you know, you need more young minds, more fresh blood. Yeah, exactly. People that are young people that are really enthusiastic about and passionate about yeah. it it's it's a it's a it's such a sad thing that I, that we see as educators when students are doing a unit that we find fascinating but they don't care about it at all you know it's it's the saddest thing because you, you're like hey man this is why it's so cool but then we don't know their experience we don't know their journey what type of yeah exactly upbringing they had what type of teachers they've had so it's yeah. it's like what can we do more to help students like that become like students like Sandy. Yeah, exactly. Who are passionate about doing what they are doing. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard work. I, I liked what he said as well. Um, another thing that I learned from that Sandy interview was the the French president. I forget his name. We're going to have to put it in there. It's mm. terrible. New French president. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's his name. Yeah, new, <laughs> that's his name. Uh, calling all the scientists over there. And I was just thinking, man, my wife who's... Uh, loves france and loves paris you know just loves the image of it oh, no. she would like die for me to go and do a phd in france oh wow don't think that's going to happen though 
language barrier could be a little bit of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I had to say. <laughs> I don't know if that's French. It's like uh, that time when Homer Simpson was pretending to know Italian. He was just, Mamma mia, pide palata, just making up words, pretending like he had to speak Italian. That's what I'm doing right now, unfortunately. You have that great phrase. I thought it was a brilliant phrase about uh, networking in science. Um, I think he said it's like tendrils are reaching out. And that's how you communicate. I think that were his exact words. Great choice of words, Sandy. I've got here on my notes. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, I thought it. I thought it was. I thought it was beautiful because that's kind of what networks are like. And and it's a bit of a realization I'm having through this uh, masters of research that I'm doing with you at the moment that uh, science is okay. Everybody kind of knows at face value it's collaborative, but I don't think you really get how it has to be collaborative. And if you don't have these large networks of people working together, it's nothing. Science is kind of nothing in isolation. And I thought that was a really good uh, take-home message and he kind of like, he hit the nail on the head there that these networks, you guys talked about the Hawking reading and stuff like that, we'll probably link that. But these networks really make science possible. Mm. And you, you can't, you have to stand on the shoulders of giants. So you have to use the work that's come before you you have to meet with people from other disciplines to get other ideas about it. And that's how scientific progress really happens. Um, so I thought that was really, really great how he kind of identified that as a really key aspect of being a good scientist. Mm. Well, he's had plenty of exposure. I mean, him and, and Kyle, who's on his research group, they've had publications, I believe. And, you know, their publications have only been possible through collaborations with other people, you know, through physicists or other chemists. Um, who have the equipment that these guys don't have over here and it's through the through collaboration you know that it's, it's literally the networks of competencies these networks enable them to be competent at doing something that yeah, they would do, doing things that they, they would otherwise not be competent at exactly yeah, exactly so not everybody has skills on every different technique of analytical chemistry yeah. but when you have these good networks you can utilize the skills of other people to reach greater outcomes than you would by yourself. So yeah. it's really, it's not even just makes the science better. I think it's really essential to the science. Very much so. And and that extends beyond the science, I think, even to this podcast over here. I mean, I'm doing the interviews. Alex has made the music. We have um, uh, Michael, you know, designing the website and doing the, the logo. So it, it, it's, again, collaboration. And if it wasn't for this collaboration, we would not have been able to put this podcast together. Yeah, I think it's excellent. I'm really looking forward to getting into some uh, more interviews. You know what I find really fascinating is Sandy's Sandy's project. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. I I think when he um when he went through all his applications, I, that was really impressive. Mm. How something something as simple as and let's use it as layman a terms as we can get porous kind of materials soaking up stuff. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, like so, a sponge yeah something like that a, a chemical sponge something as simple like that can really have applications to a whole range of areas that you don't even think about at first so uh, i think he mentioned uh, speeding up reactions mm -hmm. um and so catalysis so that was basically the same thing and, and trapping gas which is what he hopes to bring mm -hmm. it to for and climate change and, and things also like that. drug delivery not with the porous material but yeah but definitely with using these nano cages mm. it's quite interesting they have these um for those who don't have a, a chemistry background 
um, what you can do is have these long chains of carbon, okay, these long chains, and you can get them to come together. And he he talked about how they're like a framework. Yeah. And yeah. if you use a metal, you can actually get them to stick together. And and what you can do from that is build a framework that looks like a cage. Yeah. And I loved how he talked about changing the um the the states of the electrons, the energy states, by using light or temperature or pressure. Mm. So then you've, what you've got is you've got a molecule that can change its magnetic state by, the, by, these, uh, by these external kind Traminous. of influences. Yeah. And when it changes its state, obviously that's how you get it to do these types of things, like yeah. give up or release a molecule that it's holding. I, I'm not sure if that's the case so much, but I think what he was uh, talking about in terms of changing the magnetic states, so he was he, you can make a, a metal like slightly magnetic, more magnetic, more... I think the application for that is more in terms of quantum computing because oh, you can store yeah, data. Yeah. You know, you can yeah, store. Yeah, he did. Mean, yeah, I've got that written yeah. down. Sensors as well. I think he mentioned too, didn't he? Sensors. Sensors. So. What do you mean? So, uh, if they sense light or temperature changes, then they change their state, so they can be used to identify those changes. Then. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. I've got it down here. That is sensors. He mentioned. That's interesting. And yeah, data storage and quantum computing, which. It's something that just came out of nowhere in the podcast. I thought, whoa. Right. Um, what amazing kind of application of, of his work. Yeah. And, and just, you know, it's so important for researchers to know why their research is important. Yeah. But yeah. And, and explain adequately, you know, this is the application. Even if it's super basic science and super basic is, you know, just trying to understand the fundamental uh, fundamental uh, aspects of, of nature. You know, in his case, he's building down the cages in our case we're yeah. trying to understand the fundamental processes involved inside a cell applied science i think we went through this in the podcast is when you use that knowledge and then you're trying to make apply a product or make yeah make a product or uh, a new drug or something like that a new technology mm. yeah yeah there's a big difference between basic science and applied science but i think i think both are really valuable it's sometimes a little bit harder to find those applications from the basic science because mm -hmm. they're not as obvious right yeah. immediately and, obvious. And not as immediate yeah exactly right. um but i think it's really important to fund that and for people to kind of understand why we need to do why that. we need it yeah exactly and basic science has funded how many things i mean because of basic science we have the internet mm. you know <laughs> because of the basic science like these computers developed this it's always um you know scientists are working in conjunction with engineers so scientists want to run a certain experiment engineers need to build instrumentation to run those experiments yeah, exactly. you know and these experiments are fundamental um aspects or fundamental things that are happening in the universe yeah you could you wouldn't even be able to say why is this applicable a, but a it's lot of in the future well, it is. you don't even know you don't even know what they're going to lead to that's right you can be looking at one thing and you need to develop a piece of technology for it and that technology can be used for totally for something else mm. i'm going to be sketching on the details here which probably isn't great but um i think it was for the seti program but the southern hemisphere version of it it's not called seti so the search for extraterrestrial intelligence mm -hmm. so essentially that's looking for et right so scientists are looking for et and you think well what's the uh what's the immediate value of that but the immediate value okay might be hard to find because you, know, you don't find any et signal but in to look for et you have to develop a way of transmitting uh radio signals electronically and converting them so they have to develop a computer chip 
which is now used in pretty much every router and modem <laughs> in the world and we get wi-fi from that oh, snap. so you get these you get these amazing technologies coming from the most obscure types of basic research so it's really important to understand that even if you can't identify what your research will lead to exactly that there could be technologies that come from it that you don't even know you exist yet or couldn't even imagine existing yeah. that that's such a good example and as you were telling me that story you know what came to mind was um when the americans had built I mean, they they had some sort of equi equipment built because they had just signed a treaty with russia about setting off nuclear bombs and atomic bombs and uh, what happened was that as soon as they turned on this machine it was just going crazy and they thought wow what the hell is going on are, are the russians bombing the world what's going on and then they saw no there's no bombs and they still kept getting the signal and then soon they realized oh these are signals coming from supernovas oh yeah there you go yeah see how cool is that yeah yeah sometimes you just sometimes you never know what your research is going to turn up so yeah i think there's 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 value um this might be a philosophical argument you know if is there value to, to knowing something just for the sake of knowledge itself yeah 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 i don't know it's a it's a it's a difficult question i thought about it a lot like how much is knowledge worth and the other interesting question maybe this is something we can just leave and not even answer but another interesting question is um are there some pieces of knowledge that are just too dangerous to know yeah yep. i don't know I, I i jump around on that i i don't have a set answer yeah, that, that reminds me of that guy who got crucified for writing that Belko book. Yeah, yeah. Forbidden knowledge. Check out our podcast on blabcoats.com. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcast by looking up Blabcoats.